This evening I would like to begin a series of talks that will go through the month of January and February of um, important and uh, fundamental Buddhist teachings um, on the Eightfold Path of Practice. And for those who've heard them before or reflected on the Eightfold Path, this becomes a way to renew that understanding or deepen it. And for those for whom it is uh, relatively new, then it gives you some of the fundamental ground for living a wise life as laid out in the teachings of the Buddha. As the story is told, after the Buddha had sat under the tree, the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment, and gained uh, freedom of heart and the vast compassion, um, he began looking around the world with the eye of compassion and saw beings everywhere wanting to be happy. Every being that he looked like, looked at, he saw they wanted to be happy, but often doing the very things that would create more unhappiness. And so he rose from the seat and walked out into the countryside of India to begin to teach. And he thought, who should I teach first? And remembered those uh, monks, ascetics, with whom he had practiced over the years prior to his enlightenment. And so he went to visit them. He walked into the forest outside of Benares to the Deer Park. And when he appeared to them, it said he was luminous, radiant, glowing, uh, awakened. Um, and at first they said, you know, you're no longer an ascetic. We don't want to listen to you or pay respects. And he looked at them and he said, my friends, I have achieved enlightenment. Did I ever say this before to you? And they said, no. Did I ever look this way before to you? No, they said. And then he went on. And he said, as long as the absolute true knowledge and insight as regards to the noble truths and the eightfold path of practice was not clear in me, so long was I not sure that I had won the supreme enlightenment unsurpassed in all the worlds. But when I discovered this profound truth, so difficult to perceive and understand, bringing peace and compassion, not to be gained by thought, but visible to the wise heart, when I had discovered this, I realized with supreme assurance that I had touched that awakening that is unsurpassed throughout the world, and I offer it now to you. And he taught in that moment then the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path of Practice, the Noble Truth of Suffering, the Cause of Suffering in Life, the Ending of Suffering, and the Path to the Ending of Suffering, which is this Eightfold Path. And he went on in the texts, it says, this Noble Truth of the Eightfold Path that leads to the cessation of sorrows is right view, or right understanding, right attitude, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness. This is the path that leads to freedom. It is the one, if a follower 
or one who would wish to know the Dharma, the truth of this world, will complete. They will discover that they enter the stream, they stand knocking at the door of that which is beyond birth and death. So the middle path, which is another name for the Eightfold Path, was then declared by the Buddha. He said, I have seen the path of indulgence in the world and its leading to sorrow. I've seen the path of struggling and fighting, of asceticism and withdrawal from the world, and that too leads to suffering. And I have offered you a path that is in the middle of these extremes, good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So the Eightfold Path begins with what is called right or wise understanding. And it deepens as our own spiritual life deepens. The first aspect of wise understanding for someone in a spiritual life begins with the Buddha's recognition of sorrow and suffering. That if we look around this human realm, we see tremendous beauty and love and potential for enormous creativity, um, the magic and mystery of life. We also see in this human realm old age, sickness, and death. We see hunger and homelessness, the continuing arms race, the racism that poisons our society, the continuing injustice in the world, and the personal pains of depression or fear or loss or ambition or confusion or anger within our own lives. The Buddha looked out and saw this suffering and he began to teach that a life of only seeking pleasure and trying to avoid pain, grasping after what's pleasant and running from what's unpleasant will be one of ultimate disappointment. First of all, because it doesn't work. Is there anyone in this room who succeeded in avoiding loss, sickness, difficulty, fear, confusion, and pain? Please raise your hand. You can have your five dollars back. He also saw that the sufferings in this human realm, most of the sufferings, are caused by us, by greed, by hatred, by prejudice, by fear, by delusion. We currently live in a world where many, if not the majority of sufferings that are visited upon human beings, we could alleviate if there were not the forces of greed and hatred. There are wars in more than 30 countries. There is starvation in every continent, and yet grain elevators full of food in other places, but they don't get to the people who need them. There's enough medicine. Ten percent of the money we spend on our worldwide arms race could feed every hungry child on the face of the earth, every man and woman and child who hungers. So the Buddha saw that the cause of happiness and the cause of suffering is not so much in life itself but in the way that we relate to life. And that our happiness doesn't come from getting things. You remember there are two great disappointments in life, said George Bernard Shaw, not getting what you want 
and getting it, both of them. And in some way, it's true that even the things that we seek, once we have them, they can bring a certain pleasure, but then the wanting arises and we want something more. He saw that even in the most benevolent and pleasant circumstances, there's still no escape from loss or change or aging or death. Americans, it is written, spend $70 billion a year on security devices, trying to find security. Um, doesn't really work that way. Um, things are going to be insecure. It's the nature of things in this world. They are impermanent. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said, all of Buddhism can be summed up in three words, not always so. Whatever it is will be changing. And not graspable. When we look at all the circumstances of our life, they're a certain way due to conditions, and then they change. Suppose a man who was not blind beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges River, said the Buddha, as they floated along and watched carefully and examined them. And after he had carefully examined them, they would appear empty, unreal, insubstantial. In exactly the same way does the meditator behold feelings, thoughts, perceptions, inside and outside, past, future, near or far, and examining this life discovers it to be the same, impermanent, empty, ungraspable. We can't hold on to it. So then what's left? Eddie Hillison, in writing about her time in the concentration camp, said, a large group of us were crowded into the Gestapo hall. And at that moment, the circumstances of all of our lives were the same. All of us occupied the same space, the men behind the desk no less than those about to be questioned. What distinguished each of us was only our inner attitude, our spirit. So right understanding sees the problems of the world and sees the source of the problems of suffering through greed and grasping and hatred and prejudice and fear. And it begins to get a sense that this life then offers an opportunity to transform that. A friend of mine is uh, involved in spiritual practice and has been going regularly to see her spiritual director. And we were talking about the difference between the psychotherapy that she'd been involved in for some time, and spiritual direction. She said, the main difference that I feel in seeing my spiritual director is that in the psychotherapy I was involved in, there was a sense of pathology, of problems, something being wrong with me that I had to figure out and solve. But the premise of spiritual direction is not a pathological one, that there's something wrong with you or with life. The premise of spiritual direction is the journey of the soul, that we are born into this life, we will have a number of circumstances that come to us to live through, pleasant and neutral and unpleasant, 
and that those circumstances are given to us so that we can awaken compassion and understanding and freedom. Right understanding then, the beginning of the path, besides seeing the truth of human life and that one part of it is suffering, one part of it is beauty and joy, but one part is pain. Besides seeing this truth, it then asks us a question, what will we do with this life we're given? If it's not just to run after pleasure or try to run away from suffering as if that were possible, what is it for? Carl Jung commented this way. He said, what matters most in the life of a human being is not the outer events, but rather are they connected to that which is infinite. The same as Eddie Hillison's question, really, what is the spirit we bring to this life? And in a human incarnation, there are tremendous possibilities for the creation of suffering or the creation of beauty. In the midst of whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, it is possible to sense in our own hearts the potential for greater compassion, greater patience, greater love, greater wakefulness, and greater freedom. And that sense of this possibility is the beginning of the path, right understanding. That this human life is workable and that the human heart and mind are the very resources that we need to awaken compassion and freedom. It also means recognizing in whatever way that is true for us that human life is precious. And all, we all know what it's like to get the phone call, you know, from the clinic or the doctor's office for ourselves or someone else. I'm sorry, um, but uh, your tests have shown that we, you need to come in for a biopsy or you need to come in for further examination. And all of a sudden, what seemed to go along as if nothing would change in our life and it was just kind of an ordinary day is turned completely upside down. And we remember the reality that our life is only here for a certain period of time and no more. And the preciousness of it comes rushing in like a tidal wave. Wise understanding is to remember this before the telephone call. Say, what do I want to do with this life I'm given? And the preciousness, the image that's told, that's told in the ancient stories of getting a human incarnation, it says if you're on this earth, when you count all the incarnations, the beetles and the ants and the moths and the earthworms and the bacteria and so forth, the likelihood out of all the possible incarnations on this earth that you get a human incarnation is actually somewhat infrequent. So infrequent, it said, if you imagine a blind turtle swimming through the ocean and every once in a while it puts its head up on the surface of the water and floating on the surface of the ocean is a is a circle of wood like a yoke for an ox, and the chance that the turtle will stick its head up through that yoke of wood is about the chance that you have um, in the odds on this earth plane of having a human incarnation. 
It's a little bit discouraging, actually, when you hear that. I don't know if it's true or not. It's just the story. However, when you look, there are a lot of, there are a lot of other life forms, billions and billions and billions of them. And human incarnation is a pretty amazing thing to be born into. So right understanding, here we are, this is the facts of human life, beauty and suffering. No one escapes joy and sorrow. Suffering can be increased through greed, hatred, delusion, love, joy, compassion, awakefulness. Our own true nature, our Buddha nature, can also shine forth. The next part of wise understanding is the recognition of karma, which in this case doesn't mean your past lives in Tibet or any of that kind of esoteric stuff. Karma simply means the law of cause and effect, that when you plant an apple seed, you get an apple tree and not a mango tree. And similarly, the way that we act, the seeds we plant through our words and deeds, create the kind of life we will have. And if we cultivate and practice anger over and over, then as a new situation comes and circumstances arise, guess what's likely to come out of us? Anger. If we cultivate and practice patience or loving kindness over and over in difficult and easy situations, after a time, after planting those seeds, guess what starts to come out of us? So the law of karma is simply the recognition that things don't happen by random occurrence, and that awakening isn't coming by accident, but it comes through the sowing of seeds in the heart of presence and mindfulness, of compassion and loving kindness. It comes from an understanding that this is possible for you, for each of us. And it's really the gift of human life, this possibility. A Sufi teacher, see if I can find this, says, to be human means, first of all, this is Syed Hossein Nasser, to be human means, first of all, to possess a human intelligence which can know the truth and falsehood. It can see beauty and ugliness, goodness and evil. To be human is to be capable of seeing what is true and, more specifically, having the will or the capacity to choose what is true, what is beautiful, and what is beneficial. This is the freedom of the human heart given to each of us. I remember Joshu Sasaki Roshi, an old Rinzai Zen master who used to come and lead Buddhist Zen Sashin retreats at one of the largest Trappist monasteries, Spencer Abbey, which was near our center in Massachusetts. And many, many of the Trappist monks would come and sit Zen with him, and I would go over there and sit with him as well. He's a wonderful teacher. And at one point during the retreat, one of the old Trappist monks raised their hand and said, in your Buddhist teachings, all these koans, what is the sound of one hand clapping, and does the dog have Buddha nature, and so forth. He said, in your Buddhist teachings, I haven't heard anything about grace. In our tradition, we sit and we wait for God's grace to come. Um, Do you have anything like grace? And one Buddhist teacher who was asked this question said, oh yes, we have grace, but in Buddhism we call it patience. (laughs) But that wasn't Sasaki's answer. 
he looked back and he said, in my tradition, he said, if you say that you wait for the grace of God, he said, in my tradition, we believe that God has already done his part. <laughs> and now it's our part to awaken. What it means in some way is that within us is this seed of awakening, our true nature, our, bu- our, our Buddha nature, um, our inner beauty. But it's covered or contracted in our fear, in what's called the body of fear, in the small sense of self, in insufficiency, in ambition. And yet, even in a moment, it's possible to touch that place of love and of wholeness. And the path of practice, the Eightfold Path, is the commitment that we make through meditation, or prayer, or practice, or compassion and loving-kindness exercises, or retreats, or whatever form of awareness we do, the commitment and the repetition in the heart, Gandhi called it blessed monotony, of bringing blessings to whatever it is that we do over and over again through our care and our attentions. And as we do, it's as if we kind of release or strip away or let go of the fears and the confusions and live from that place of our deepest values. Now that process of unlayering is not an easy one for some of us. This is from a little book that my daughter gave me entitled, What Women Say About Men. (laughs) And then this particular quote is from Roseanne Arnold, so you can see where this is going. (laughs) She says, a good man doesn't just happen. They have to be created by us women. A guy is a lump like a donut. So first you gotta get rid of all the stuff that his mom did to him. Then you get got to get rid of all that macho crap they pick up from the beer commercials. <laughs> and finally, there's my personal favorite, the male ego. When that's gone, then you start to have something worthwhile. <laughs> More traditionally, if I can, from the uh, verses of the Dhammapada, Instead of Roseanne here, it says, uh, wait a second, here we are, 14.31. As the farmer channels water to his land, as the fletcher whittles his arrow, as the carpenter turns his wood, so the wise one directs their own heart and mind, like a potter at a wheel making something of beauty. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own mind unguarded. But once directed, no one can help you as much, not even your mother or father. And so one begins to take the practices of mindfulness and attention, sacred attention we could call it, the practices of loving kindness or forgiveness, and do them over and over again, which is to say reminding ourselves over and over when we get entangled and lost that there's another way to be in this moment, with this person, with this circumstance. And we start to see that our confusion is like a mask or a cover, that body of fear. It is not who we are or how we have to live. A story. According to one ancient Indian fable, a mouse was in constant distress because of its fear of the cat. 
So a powerful yogi took pity on it and turned it into a cat. But then it became afraid of the dog. So the yogi turned it into a dog. Then it began to fear the panther. So the yogi turned it into a panther, whereupon it was full of fear of the humans in the villages nearby. At this point, the yogi sage with all his powers gave up and turned it into a mouse again saying nothing i do for you is going to be of any use because you still believe yourself to be a mouse what is it that we believe ourselves to be who do we think we really are the small sense of self the confusion and the need in the body of fear or something more beautiful that is there in us as well in our hearts our own true nature to be human and to awaken the the gift of humanity is to awaken that buddha nature another story this is a story um, from a physician who uh, teaches in medical school in the u.s but also does international aid medicine in all kinds of uh, places of distress in Cambodia and Rwanda and places like that. And she wrote, At the end of one of my last days, I was ready to leave the camp where we had been working in Zaire and Rwanda. And at that moment, Mugunga, who was a young, very gaunt widow, approached me with a malnourished three-year-old. We brought her a bowl of beans and potatoes, only to discover moments later a young, starving, emaciated orphan girl of perhaps ten years who also came up to us. But we were out of all supplies. Extremely discouraged, we began to search for a way to get a bit more food for her. When turning back, I saw that the young widow had invited the girl to share her food. The baby, the stranger girl, and the young mother were all scooping up the potatoes and beans from a shared bowl with their hands. What would I have done if I was in that young mother's place? If we look deeply, we understand that the happiness that is possible in this life, that the Buddha discovered and that each of us can discover, doesn't come by grasping, by fear, by accumulation, but by opening, by letting go, by joy, by the opening of the heart to this world with its joys and sorrows, just as it is. And then there comes, unbidden, a natural and generous spirit that's not the possession of anything, because we don't even possess ourselves. I mean, you sit in meditation, as we did for 40 minutes, and you say to your mind, don't think. Does it listen? You know, or you say to your heart, don't feel depressed, or don't worry, or don't whatever. Does it do what you ask? The mind has a mind of its own, so to speak. And the feelings change, and the body does. I mean, you can take care of it, sure. You know, you bathe it, and you jog it, and things like that. You're supposed to take care of it, but you don't own it. You rent it. You borrow it. Spiritual life, then, is not about possessing or finding security, but rather it's discovering what Alan Watts called the wisdom of insecurity, the capacity for...
for freedom and compassion of heart, no matter what the circumstances. Right understanding is a willingness to dedicate ourselves to awakening, no matter how conditions change. So the vows that the Dalai Lama takes, which are, are beautifully recited in the text of Shantideva. The Dalai Lama takes these vows as his personal vows. May I be protector to those without protection, a guide for all travelers on the way. May I be a bridge, a boat, and a ship for all those who would cross the waters. May I be an island for those who seek one, a lamp for those desiring light, a bed for all those who need rest. May I be a wishing jewel, a magic vase. May I be great medicine for all those who are sick, a wish-fulfilling tree, a horn of plenty for the world. And until they pass away and released from sorrow, may I be the source of life for all the realms, varied beings, until the end of space. And like great space and the great elements of the earth, may I always support the life of all boundless creatures until awakening brings joy to them all. That's quite a vow to dedicate oneself to, isn't it? May I be the medicine for those who are sick. May I be the food for those who are hungry. Right understanding tells us that we can dedicate our life to something beautiful. Now, if we look at our own situation, we then have to reflect. How could this situation be the path of awakening, the situation I find myself in at this time? You know, there is a traditional Buddhist practice, reflection, in which one is advised to look around the world and to see every single being in the world as enlightened except for one. All the beings of the world are enlightened except for one. Guess who? <laughs> Moi, as Miss Piggy would say, oneself, right? And all the other beings are doing exactly the perfect thing that you need to awaken perfect patience, perfect compassion, perfect loving kindness, perfect generosity. They're providing you all the circumstances that are ideal for your liberation. Isn't that amazing? It might be true. So wise understanding. Here we are. If we are dedicated to awakening, there are the eight worldly winds, praise and blame, gain and loss, joy and sorrow, fame and disrepute. They change all the time. These will continue to change. What do we do in the face of praise and blame? gain and loss, sickness and health. One lama who was thrown in prison for 25 years in Tibet by the uh, Chinese Communist Army wrote a letter out where he bowed and he thanked them in advance for their generosity in providing food, such as it was, lodging, and the advanced practices necessary for the fulfillment of his bodhisattva path of compassion. Thank you for what you're going to offer to me. And he knew he would be tortured. He knew he would be hungry. But this was the practices that would fulfill his heart's desire 
to be a Buddha. Or a hospice worker who was a friend of mine, who was working with an old Latino man who had AIDS, you know, and was dying from it. At some point, they were praying together and talking, and the conversation came around to why did he think he had AIDS, you know, was was they led a bad life, or he was the victim of what had happened to him, or he was guilty, all the kind of stories. And the man reflected for a little while, and he said, I've been thinking about this, and my understanding is that I have this disease so that I could have more time to think about Jesus. That was his answer. And he went back to his prayers. What do we do with the circumstances that are given to us? Because they are the place of bondage or of liberation. As my teacher Buddha Dasa said, it is here now, if you seek nirvana, it is no other place than in this moment, in the eternal present. How are we using our life? The questions we ask in the end are very simple ones. When you really look back over a whole life, did I awaken? Did I honor this life? Did I love well? What else really matters? Now, if we reflect on wise understanding, we can also reflect on what areas, what parts of our life put us to sleep. Not with judgment, but with understanding and compassion. What are those things that fall outside, so to speak, our spiritual practice? Money, NASDAQ, right? (laughs) Driving, our own body, relationship to family, certain emotions that we have, you know, our work. What is the places that we say, well, this I just go along with, I don't make into my practice. And what would it be like to bring the spirit of compassion to that place to say, this will be a place of awakening too. Because awakening isn't some state that you get into, enlightened retirement. I've got it. I've got to hold it. Keep it. Can't have it change. Oh, it's so cool. (laughs) You know, you can't do it. You breathe in and you breathe out. And awakening is the same. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said, what we're after is not enlightenment, but one moment of enlightenment after another. Now, there's something very good in this, because it also means that it's never too late. Never, never too late. Whether you're 25 or 85, it's not too late. The next moment, this moment, is the moment that enlightenment exists. It's possible. So Zen master Hui Nang from ancient China said this. He said, as far as the Buddha nature is concerned, there is no difference between a sinner and a sage. One enlightened thought, and one is a Buddha. One foolish thought, and one is again an ordinary person. Like that, from one moment to another. So it's never too late. Any moment it's possible. It's like breathing. If we can be present with our breath, we can be present in this body, in this moment. 
it's so mysterious, this human life that we're given. Um, I read a story that I found very moving in Rachel Remen's books, the first of her book, Kitchen Table Wisdom, uh, uh, a few years ago. I'll read the story to you and then tell you another. And this is particularly an interesting story she, she tells because she's trained as a physician and a scientist. For the last ten years of his life, Tim's father had Alzheimer's disease. Despite the devoted care of his mother, Tim's mother, the father had slowly deteriorated until he'd become a sort of walking vegetable. He was unable to speak for years, was fed, clothed, and cared for as if he were a young child. Tim and his brother grew older. They would stay with their father for brief periods of time while their mother took care of the needs of the household. One Sunday, while she was out doing the shopping, the boys, then 15 and 17, were watching television. Their father sat nearby. Suddenly, he slumped forward and fell to the floor. Both sons realized immediately something was terribly wrong. His color was gray, his breath uneven and rasping. Frightened, the older boy told the younger brother, Call 911. Before the younger boy could respond, a voice he had not heard in ten years, a voice he could barely remember, spoke up and said, Son, don't call 911. Tell your mother that I love her. Tell her that I'm all right. And then Tim's father lay there and he died. Tim, who is now a cardiologist, looked round the room of the group of doctors mesmerized by the story. He said, because he died unexpectedly at home, the law required we have an autopsy. My father's brain was almost entirely destroyed by Alzheimer's. For many years I've asked myself, where did those words come from? Now it happens, and I hope that it's okay to tell this story because I didn't speak with them, I heard it second hand, that um, members of this community who live in Woodacre, who are very lovely beings, Tim and Jane Unger, that Tim, his name happens to be related to someone in this story, um, had a brain tumor. Um, and over these past months has gotten, uh, it had, tumor had grown, and he got closer and closer to death and became unable to speak any intelligible words now for quite a long time. He tried to speak, but all that came out were sounds that were unintelligible to anyone else. And it seemed like it would be a slow and difficult dying process. They had two children. But um, I guess it was about two weeks ago when he uh, became much more seriously ill. Um, and it became clear that he was going to die soon. And shortly before he died, even though he'd been unable to speak for a long time, his words came back. And he told his wife that he loved her dearly. He said his loving goodbyes to his children. And then he sang with them and told them that he would be all right and that he didn't want any extraordinary care. And then he died. Who are we really? Who do you think you are? This body? Certainly we use this body. But if that's all that you think you are, you're in trouble. <laughs> we are. There is some great spirit that brought you into this human life and that carries you through it. And to develop 
a wise understanding is to go inside and touch that place of your own true nature and awaken it, remember it, let it live through you. And then when you're driving down the road and there's a rock in the middle of the road, you can even pull over and get out of your car and go back and move the rock out of the way so that the cars behind you don't run into it. Or you can bring that spirit of presence and compassion to your body or to the conflict in your lives or the bills that you have to pay or the relationship that you're in or your children or your parents when they're sick. And instead of being identified with the contracted, fearful, grasping, small sense of self, you can remember that in any moment the path is here for you. Patience, compassion, freedom. You can breathe open, let go. You see what's in front of you, that's the first thing, to see it with your eyes open, your heart open. You bow to it, oh, this is some more suffering, you know, or this is beautiful, boy, I would like to keep this forever, but I guess I can't. Whatever it happens to be, you acknowledge what's come, you see it, you bow to it, you offer your compassion to the beauty, to the pain, whatever it is. This is the pain I've been given. This is the loveliness I've been given. And then you let it go. And let it go doesn't mean get rid of it or not feel it or not honor it. Letting go is really not the right translation of that Sanskrit word. A better translation is to let it be. You love it, you bring your attention, you live with it for its time, and then you let it pass on. Without grasping, without hatred, without aversion, you live from moment to moment from this place of the Buddha within you that can bow to all things. Who am I in all this? We get caught up and all these stories come. Is that who I really am? And our lives are busy and so complicated. Can we honor what we're given in a sacred fashion? I remember the last time I was in Bali that we had a driver for one of our trips around the island who had a new fancy new car, a Suzuki Super Kijang, it was called, this kind of little little station wagon. He was very pleased, and it had a whole altar in it with the Balinese, you know, flowers and images, and it was all gussied up and so forth. And as we were driving around Bali with, with this man, who was a lovely fellow, every time we came to a crossing street or intersection, he would lean on the horn really loud. And at one point, I turned to him and I said, are you trying to take care because it's such a beautiful new car and you don't want to get into any accident? Is that why you lean on the horn so loud at every intersection? You know, in India it's even more that way. They say that you don't really need an India, in India you don't really need a, uh, an engine so much, but you definitely need a horn <laughs> in your car, right? Anyway, he turned to me and said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not uh, blowing the horn um, to get the other cars t- out of the way when I'm, when I'm coming to the intersection, I press on the horn to call to the gods so that they know that I'm coming. Right? 
and so that they can see me and everyone else safely through the intersection. And I realized even though Bali is changing, that things are still pretty good there. What a way to drive, to call to the gods. That this, wherever we are, is the place of the Buddha. Can we allow the circumstances of our lives to bring awakening? We can, is what right understanding teaches us, wise understanding. My teacher Ajahn Chah put it this way. He said, the Eightfold Path is two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. And it is the heart or the mind that walks the path. If you want to find the path, it's just in this experience. This is the place of the Buddha. And what's asked of us then is commitment, trust, a willingness to live from that deepest compassion that is who we really are. Now, when you go into temples in Japan or Tibet, Burma, certain temples, there's a kind of an odd thing that a number of these temples have tiny little doors to go in. Not all of them. Some have big doors. But some have these little tiny doors where you go into the shrine room and you have to kind of get down before you can go into the shrine room. And it's on purpose. The reason for the tiny little door before you go into this magnificent shrine room is so that you will bow. Because it's only by letting go of who we think we are in the kind of inflated sense and where we're going and how we're in charge and so forth. Only when we let go of that and bow that then we can open our eyes and see the mystery that's always been here and always will be before us. Imagine before you went home, before you go in the door tonight, if you would bow before you enter your house as if it was the temple. Imagine when you get to, you know, the software company that you work at or the, you know, the clinic or whatever it is before you go in. I mean, you don't have to be weird about it. A little bow, not that people see you, you know. But you were to bow and say, this is my place of awakening. This is where the Buddha has assigned me to become, I'm going to be the Buddha of software or whatever it happens to be. To pause at the gate as a temple as the Buddha did, as countless other beings have, we can discover freedom, that luminous shining heart. We can see with the eyes of wisdom. We can hold the world with the heart of compassion. And we know it because we've done it many, many times. Brahmana Maharshi writes, close, He says, if the heart is happy, not only the body, but the whole world becomes happy. If we tend to the heart, we tend to the whole world. So you must find out how to become truly happy in any circumstance. Wanting to reform the world without discovering your own true self is like trying to cover the whole world with leather to avoid the pain of walking on stones and thorns. It is much simpler to wear shoes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.